Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Who do men find most attractive? It's an interesting topic with the recent study that came out that I want to unpack, but what's really intriguing to me and alarming, I think it's a moment to pause and think about it, is this attempt that's being made, and I referred to it a couple times, but haven't really dove into the topic, and that is to redefine brain dead. To define someone is de- brain dead essentially sooner than was done before. In other words, if someone's in a coma, but still essentially uh, over- using or achieving its- some of the person's own functions without being completely artificially held up on every level. Uh, We'll talk about that in many respects later on. It's a little bit of an intricate topic, but there's a difference between someone who's brain dead and in a coma and still performing some of his or her own functions. And so what's happening, though, is why? And I think that's a key question. Why would we desire, why would someone desire to define brain dead as being sooner? Shouldn't we within the medical community maybe... Think about giving an opportunity when there's pause for concern, when we've seen people survive such comatose situations, or when we've seen there's been misdiagnosis, that we don't quite leave the door open for the proclamation of someone being legally dead, and therefore what can or can't be done with the body after. And I think that's the question. Why would there be a desire to redefine brain dead so that a person is considered dead sooner so that things can be done with the body. We're actually going to be talking about that and more later on today on Trending and also unpacking Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. We're going to be diving into some really neat elements surrounding uh, human happiness and the understanding of how we start to understand ourselves and interact with people in the world. We've been really laying out the foundation of Pope St. John Paul II's work in this idea of original innocence, the state of the human person prior to the fall. But today we're going to start to unpack, well, what does that look like as a woman? And tomorrow we'll start to unpack what that looks like as a man. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Joining me today on Trending will be Hugh Brown, the Executive Vice President of American Life League, Confronting some of the most important hot topic, but hot topic button issues regarding human life, especially from a Catholic perspective. And one area of concern that I've been thinking a lot about recently, Hugh, has been, been this redefinition of brain dead. I think many people, unless they have a family member who's been in a coma or maybe they themselves have experienced that, maybe haven't really thought a lot about this whole idea of being brain dead and why it would matter if a redefinition occurred. But my kind of red alert alarm started going off a couple months ago when I saw that the Uniform Law Commission has been working on making a recommendation 
to the Uniform Determination of Death Act, that's known as the UDDA, that would basically make it so that physicians could declare a person as legally dead when they're in a persistent coma. Now, just to kind of lay out a little bit of that landscape, what's happening here is basically when a person, they would redefine it so that if a person is in a coma, yet still while in that comatose state, uh, performing some of his or her own functions himself, that a physician could actually consider that person brain dead. Now, this is significant because there is an incredible advancement in medical technology and really breakthrough technologies where professionals can actually keep artificially a person alive through oxygenated blood flowing, uh, through circulating it through their system, maintaining electrolytes, even stabilizing it and maintaining everything from hormones to much more in the body. And so while the question is here, there's a difference essentially between complete artificial uh, aliveness, I guess you could argue, a state of the body versus someone who is still, while in a comatose state, performing some of his or her own functions. So the idea is, is that the push to redefine being brain dead would make it so that if someone is still performing some of those functions, him or herself, that they could still, a physician could arbitrarily still just decide to go through with proclaiming someone brain dead. And therefore, I think my big question, Hugh, and I want to kind of get your thoughts on this is, well, why would be there, there be a desire to redefine brain dead? And what will we do with the bodies after? So if you'd like to jump in on this whole conversation, that's Hugh Brown from American Life League. I really appreciate your thoughts on this topic, especially from a pro-life perspective and where this could go. Well, and I think one of the things that we have to look very closely at is the first part of what you, you asked. Why? Why is there a desire to redefine what brain dead means, uh, brain death rather? And I think you just look no further than the current culture that we live in, where you have states working overtime since the um, uh, uh, defeat of Roe versus Wade and the issue of abortion was returned to the states. You have states that are, are clamoring and falling over uh, one another to allow women to abort children from the moment of creation up until 21 days after a child is born. You know, we live in a culture that doesn't value human life. And we live in a culture that somehow would say that Timory needs a new liver and this person with a partially functioning brain. I mean, define that, right? So the, the request or the proposal, rather, from uh, this organization to change the very definition of brain dead, the Uniform Law Commission, which I didn't even know existed. I had to, when you asked the question, I had to look up who these people are, <laughs> right? The, the, current, the current definition uh, says that irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem, that's the current standard, meaning there's no brain function. There's absolutely no brain function that the, the body is shutting down. Your heart's not beating. You're not breathing. Irre irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain. And Pope John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, stated that the complete and irreversible cessation of all brain activity, if, rigorous, if rigorously applied, does not seem to conflict with the essential elements of a sound anthropology. You know, and so what, and that was just based on, um, I mean, that was included in the release from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is saying that to change that standard to some 
partial brain activity is now defined as brain death is just insanity. And what is the motivation? As I was just going to allude to, you need a new liver. I'm partially brain dead, whatever that means. And so while I'm alive, you take my liver causing my death, right? What is the motivation? It is the culture that we live in. It is truly a culture of death. This is just an extension of that. And at the American Life League, we have dealt with this from day one. It's not just, you know, killing children in the womb and now infanticide and selling their body parts. As ghoulish as that is, people don't even pay attention to that now. But they've been coming for the elderly, right, and killing them in hospice for decades. Right. right? Let's just morphine grandma to death. We're going to take mm. six months off her life. Who's going to know? That happens every day. In Canada, uh, you know, I, I work with some really good people there that are, the, the laws in Canada are, are nuts. And they want to push that stuff down here where you could be a 17-year-old and be depressed. You could legally kill yourself. I mean, that's assisted suicide. You're Life isn't viewed worth living. At, I have a nephew who, who's a miracle. He's a, a, a child with Down syndrome. He's an inspiration. He's inspiring lives all across America. His life isn't worth worth. Doesn't have any worth in this type of thinking. Partial brain activity. What does that mean? They don't define it. This should trouble everyone, right? Mm -hmm. I would joke. I have friends with partial brain activity, right? I mean, that's a joke, <laughs> right? You know, I, yeah. I have a, I have a son that makes the, the the darndest decisions. I'm like, you know, are you thinking today? <laughs> so partial brain activity, it should be opposed. And I applaud the bishops who, Judy Brown, who I would say is one of the leading experts on the planet, the founder of the American Life League, on what brain death is because, <clears throat> excuse me, because of the tentacles of the culture of death when she started fighting abortion and it went into the, the topics of how do we keep, you know, how do we kill grandma and how do we kill this person who you know, is, is on a feeding tube, but still has brain, uh, a brain function like Terry Chavo. Um, there have been mm -hmm. examples all throughout uh, the last, you know, uh, 50 years of us doing this, where those will become everyday examples, right? And there won't be any outrage. Mm -hmm. You know, the, like what happened with the poor Terry Chavo, who, who had yeah. a very little, she had brain function, right? She was on a feeding tube, but her, mm -hmm. you know, her, her supposed husband, you know, said her life wasn't worth living and her family fought for, for years to keep her alive and finally... Right. She was allowed to die, starve to mm -hmm. death, and somehow that's humane. Th and that will become comment, an everyday occurrence. And just to comment for a moment, because I think that we've uh, passed a generation who maybe doesn't know who Terry Schiavo is. And I remember I was a little girl when they uh, finally, I guess you could say, pulled the plug on her so that she would die. And again, she had partial brain activity, but what was significant is that she was awake. Her eyes were moving. I remember the day that they killed her. Uh, she was following and tracking because there was a live video camera in the room. We knew people who were there. There was a live video camera in the room. We watched live and she was following a balloon with her eyes in that very room. I, I saw it live and that was the same day they pulled the plug on this woman's life. And so this is significant because I think we've passed in many respects a generation that knows that story and how sensationalized it was for a very just reason. Physicians, along with her husband, who wanted out of the circumstances he was in with a very sick wife, uh, allowed for that to occur. So this is frightening, as you say, to declare someone who's partially brain dead, but not completely brain dead, as dead legally, so that we can do what? And I think that's key. You mentioned organ harvesting, but I think there are a lot of other areas in the 21st century where we could see this going everything from the fertility crisis today and the debate over surrogacy many people having children 
via surrogates today and the fact that there are legal battles occurring because often the mother who is carrying the baby suddenly wants to keep the baby or keep one of the babies in the event there are more than one and the person who hired her wants to abort one uh, but only keep the other and yet to the woman carrying the baby wants to keep the one that the other person wants to abort and it's a whole mess what we're seeing but if you were to take someone who was declared brain dead and then artificially enhance this person for example to carry and gestate a baby because again we have a lot of technologies today to artificially sustain life i think there's a lot that could happen even just on that front with regard to fertility and how violating that is of the human person and as crazy as that may sound um it reminds me of i was at the Babel conference uh bringing america back to life in february or march i can't quite recall when the founder of the babylon b noted that you know that is a, it's a website it's a company that makes satirical headlines that seem farcical and insane they were celebrating the fact that the, they were just had passed the 100 mark, meaning that 100 of the things that they create that are supposed to be funny and crazy are actually happening. So what you just said is absolutely not beyond reproach because we live in a, a, a time where there are groups of people. Uh, Dr. Fauci is an example comes to mind. You can Google this. You can find it on YouTube when he is asked, and maybe they took it down. He's asked about being Catholic, and he says, oh, no, 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 I've evolved past that. And that's who mm -hmm. these people are, okay? Mm -hmm. They know better than God. And what you just described is playing God, mm -hmm. right? And I had a very smart person forward something to me that said, you know, that uh, reminded me, which I didn't know this, that during the first six weeks of pregnancy, our body lives without a brain, right? And so our human life does not begin with a human brain. Right? And certainly a, a child in the womb is alive and the brain develops and after the sixth week, the sixth week it's there. But brain death, you know, it isn't, the, when does the soul leave the body, right? Mm -hmm. when, when a person passes, right? And if your brain is still alive and still functioning, there's always hope, right? How many miracles could you and I could discuss right now of people that came back, you know, um, from, from horrible situations where they were traumatized and technically brain dead, but had some form mm -hmm. of function. There's stories, there's stories of, uh, from a uh, hundred plus years ago where people were declared dead. And, you know, they used to put little bells on the outside right. of coffins because they weren't <laughs> sure. And it's, you know, that when uh, in doubt, right? When, when in, doubt, in doubt, that's right. For whom the bell tolls. I think that's where that saying comes from. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. So <laughs> medical advances are great. Right. But not when they're used for evil intent. And what you described is horrifying. And, mm -hmm. of course, we can't put that past the human secularists and the, tran the transhumanists that want to see a new yes. creation, that want to see the, the blending of technology and, and, and tissue, which is just absolutely abhorrent and makes no sense whatsoever yeah. other than we think we're God. And they're going to find out the hard way they're not. And I want to dive in a moment into the transhumanist side of this because I think it's all significant. And Hugh, I know when I wrote to you earlier thinking this is a great topic, we need to talk about it. I'm not really seeing this all tied together with regard to this redefinition of brain dead. Yet it's just been sitting in the back of my mind day after day after day. I'm looking back to articles from 2010, 2015, 2018, and it all seems to sync together with this desire to redefine brain dead. Even seeing articles where people say the goal 
was by 2030 to make it so that we have artificially enhanced bodies where AI is combined with the human person. Now, look at just the technological advancements of the last year with everything from chat GPT to you name it, how we're using technology. It's incredible. But again, it's a pause for, well, should we be doing this? And I want to just backtrack for a brief moment here. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. That's Hugh Brown, the executive vice president of American Life League. They're on the cutting edge with regard to life issues. You can find them at ALL.org. And they're approaching from a Catholic perspective. And you mentioned earlier what the Catholic Church teaches with regard to uh, not just brain dead, but also when the soul leaves the body. And we don't see physically when the soul leaves the body, right? The soul is unseen. But what we do know that is measurable is that there's physical evidence as to whether or not a person can perform his or her own vital functions. And so with this desire of the Uniform Law Commission to redefine what brain dead is, to make it legally dead if you're kind of brain dead, to enter into these gray waters, it's problematic. And we're talking about, well, I think the bigger question is why would there be a desire to redefine brain dead? You mentioned organ harvesting. We just talked about the fertility and fertility movement and the desire to use someone who's legally dead, brain dead, to gestate a baby instead of hiring a surrogate, using a corpse, essentially. And it's horrific. And maybe you might be thinking, wow, Timur, you're making a big jump. I don't think so. I think this is where technology is. And we need to be having these conversations and asking why? What's next? But you just mentioned, Hugh, something significant as well, and that is transhumanism. I really want to talk about genetic engineering because even just looking back on articles from five years ago, I'm looking at just an article from The Guardian, for example. They're talking about everything from crypto freezing, uh, cryogenic freezing, and how even just back in 2018, there were already four facilities, I'm sure far more now, with just 100 bodies frozen in refrigerators in Arizona alone with people who hope that when they're able to be thawed, they'll have this resurrection with the fusion of artificial intelligence and the corpses, the bodies of human people. And like you said, it's people wanting to play God but I also think it's people who don't believe in God. And so they're trying to create their own future and their own paradise in many respects. And I, I just had this conversation with one of one of my children in terms of the statement, whether or not you believe in God, right? Um, you're going to, everyone, everyone that's ever been created, you know, will find out the truth at the moment they stop living. And if you don't believe in God, well, there's a hard truth coming. There's far too much, uh, there's just so many miraculous things that exist for us, for you and I to be talking at this moment. And it, it's incalculable to cover them all. And man it, it has one consistent thread in that, in, from the very beginning, right? And that's our ability um, to not resist temptation, right? We're all given will and the free will. And, and free will is best exercise or is best, I think, celebrated and best recognized when free will does not choose the easy path, does not choose something that seems uh, contrary to God because we want to test it. Um, you know, the free will is in its greatest, I think, expression of God's love for us when we choose to obey and follow Him, which means we resist temptation and don't take the easy path and choose the difficult path because. If, and if we choose neither, evil's undefeated, right? Because that's a choice. Evil always wins. Evil will always 
triumph when we choose to do nothing because evil never stops. So I, I think it's important when it comes to transhumanism and man's desire to play God and blend technology with human beings that Catholics take a deep breath and realize that this is a path that has no good outcome, right? It's not what the Lord intended for creation because the people guiding this don't believe in him, right? They want to supplant him from the Bill Gateses of the world to the Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and, and Dr. Fauci. There are very corrupt, evil people with evil intent that pretend to do good but have nothing but either depopulation in mind which is in and of itself evil, or the redefinition of what a human being is, from mRNA to transhumanism to all the things to the redefinition of brain dead, they are no longer in the shadows. And people, rather than just listening to this conversation and saying, well, that's disturbing, do something about it, right? Write your bishop, write your congressman, you know, write people that you think will, will your senator, people that you think will matter, and speak to people about it. Right? I think we just yeah. live in a world of absolute apathy right. from all the things you described. It's just, it's ridiculous. Right. And it, it makes you really think about having things such as advanced directives. You know, Catholics talk a lot about this. What happens when you die? What happens if you go into a coma? Well, it all matters because here's the bottom line. If you think that it's a stretch and we're talking about this idea of redefining brain dead to be partially brain dead and therefore we can just kill off people, what will happen? Experimentation. Experimentation that will lead to, I really do believe this, I don't say it might, I think it will, lead to the attempt to gestate babies in so-called dead corpses to using this for research, for transhumanism, to what we already know, and that is the harvesting of body parts. That's what's so concerning. And so we've got to think about it. You've got to talk about these issues and get ahead of what's happening in the culture. I think so often, you, as Catholics, we're reacting to what's happening today with just the fast technological advancements, everything with this gender craze that seemed to hit us from left field, that we're thinking ahead of the game and saying, no, there's a certain line in the same where we have to say, research, progress for the sake of progress, those aren't good things in and of themselves. They always have to be ethical. And at the end of the day, always respect the human person, both the future of the human person, but also the present individual that we're talking to, even if it is a deceased individual. And I think that's really key. Hugh, I really appreciate your key insights into this, a hot topic with everything from transhumanism, infertility and surrogacy, organ harvesting tied into this redefinition of brain dead. Maybe you think I'm crazy on this topic. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts or what other conclusions you might see occurring with the redefinition of brain dead. Feel free to write me on relevantradio.com forward slash trending. You can write in there, reach out on social media. Hugh Brown's with me. They're on the cutting edge of issues surrounding human life from a Catholic perspective. Find him at all.org. We'll be right back with Hugh Brown and we're going to unpack the topic of why is it or who is it that men find most attractive in the culture today? What's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app.
I'm looking at a couple fascinating studies, and I think there's a lot more that could be said and looked up on these, but there was a study that came out published by Scientific Reports and another a study published by the Journal of Public Economics, and it had to do with attractiveness among women and who men found more attractive. And it's a little bit of a funny one, and I hope no one will get offended from a political perspective, but I do want to state a couple facts, and I'll start with these facts. Statistically speaking, women who are Republican have more involvement both in their faith, believing in God, and also more involvement in volunteer activities than women who are politically liberal or Democrat. And it's really interesting to see the statistics that come out. Again, these are just stats that are thrown out there. I'm not saying it's just a universal absolute, but statistically speaking, the numbers are much higher among women who are, again, Republican to be more involved in church and to engage in more volunteer activities and be closer within their community in that respect. That's fascinating. So tie that in with a study that just came out. I read a headline that said women with attractive faces were more likely to be right wing, while women whose faces showed contempt were more likely to be left wing. And again, I just kind of laugh at this initial headline because I think that people will tie it into a left versus right thing. And I don't think it should be left versus right. I think it should be Statistically speaking, people who believe in God more and people who believe in God less and how that inspires them to be more involved in their community and therefore have a more optimistic mindset with regard to society and the challenges of culture and wanting to dig in and help affect change. So that's kind of my take big picture on being delicate in addressing this topic. But joining me today is Hugh Brown, the executive vice president of American Life League. They're on the cutting edge of addressing pro-life issues, especially from a Catholic perspective. But you're also a football coach. You founded a high school. You work a lot with young men and women. And I was intrigued to get your thought on this recent study. This is a fun one. This is a, a little lighter than brain death and some of the other things we've talked about. <laughs> but I mean, if you look, so if you look at, so the definition of contempt, right? And it's funny how the study uses right wing and left wing, which it just drives me nuts. But the contempt, right? So a person who feels contempt, the, the, um, the definition, the first definition is a person or thing is beneath consideration, worthless or deserving scorn. And I think that kind of defy defines what we see as as left wing today, right? I don't think liberal exists anymore. There's just absolute disdain for anything other than what that ideology believes. And from the time you and I have been talking, which is just maybe a couple of years or, or a year and a half, even that ideology it just keeps changing. They don't know what they believe, but. If you oppose them, you're some type of racist or you're some type of phobe or hateful person or bigot. And so, of course, you're going to have a scornful look on your face because you're not happy, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is opposed to you and everything. And when you boil it down, the way I explain it to young men, you mentioned the football coach, is that when you pursue that ideology, it, it just, it, it, it's, it's just a path of misery, right? Because you don't know what they believe today. It certainly isn't Christian, and that's not advocating for 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 anything that might be right wing, I believe more in in faithfulness and conservatism, um, which is serving the Lord. Right, is being selfless. When you say faces that show contempt, it means <laughs> yeah, they have scorn. Something's beneath them. And when you don't have that belief, right? When you look at things objectively, or you, or you look through it from the lens of Christ, 
or identifying as a Christian, you're going to be more, more gracious. You're going to be more happy. Um, you have a husband and children, and you deal with stuff every day, and you've, you, you deal with it as a Christian. You deal with it as a mother. You deal with it with Christ as your head. And what you see is you try to come at it from, from love. Sometimes you got to be tough. Sometimes you got to do things that are uncomfortable. But you try to see everything from the standpoint of, of peace and grace. And so I would imagine that if we were just to look at pictures, you know, because online they're 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 making fun all the time of some of these 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 left wing people in there and just uh, their that. wackiness and it's yes, scornful, I'm, right? Right. I'm glad you're bringing that up. Yep. Yeah, because it does. It generalizes, right? It generalizes. I I think there's a lot of young people that just go with the flow. They don't know what they believe, mm-hmm. right? They just don't know what to believe. They may not have been raised with. Uh, the, the same values or in the same household because I think parenting has changed dramatically since 2008 right. with the advent of the smartphone and the iPad. I don't know about you, but when we go out to dinner, what I see now, if there's <laughs> a lot of families, I mean, I see one, two, three-year-olds, four, everybody, every young person is, is just handed a phone to keep them quiet, right? right? There's just no interaction with the family at dinner. Um, and that creates just sort of a level of indifference. So what mm-hmm. does a young person believe? Well, you and I have to be involved in helping them understand that in, in what the truth is. And that's what we do. You know, that's what I do as a football coach. I just today, I sprinted over here in my vehicle to, to do this, the, this um, interview and got off the field. And my message had nothing to do about football, but just leadership. Leadership, because today it was hot, it was miserable, and I didn't like what I saw. And I have a, a group of, of, of men now. These are 17, 18-year-old men. It's, it's evolved. Very talented group, but that doesn't mean a thing. If they're not leading one another and they're not supporting one another and they're not having positive energy. And I think that's probably kind of what this study looked at too. If, if somebody's looking more happy and they tend to be more conservative and if it's more scornful and they're saying they're a little bit more liberal, that kind of tells you something right there. And it wasn't like 12 pictures, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think the study that you sent me was started with 5,000 and they boiled it down right. to 1,200 women. That's a pretty big sample size. And right. 61%, you know, we'd call that a landslide in an election. So- Uh, take it for what it's worth, but I think it's kind of funny. Now, I do want to tie in the the part of RBF resting, you know what, face and a few other elements to this because I do think it's significant. But I want to come back to a few things that were said, especially just going from the get-go that studies showing, and if you're just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Tim Ray, that's Hugh Brown from American Life League. Uh, The study showed women with attractive faces were more likely to be right-wing, while women whose faces showed contempt we're more likely to be left-wing. I don't like the right and left side of it, but statistically speaking, we know that people who are more Republican tend to believe more in God and be more involved in their community and volunteering. And you mentioned what scorn is and that the faces showed scorn who were less attractive. Yet what's the opposite of that in many respects? It's humility. And Mm. I know as a Catholic woman that your faith, when you take it seriously and you actually believe in God, it really knocks you on your butt with regard to mm. getting over your own pride in that mm. daily battle with pride. And I think that's significant because when we talk about how challenging pride is today, we can very easily as a society look down upon other people, not listen to them, look at ourselves as a perpetual victim if someone else has a different perspective and therefore you are attacking me just by even thinking something different today. No, you're exactly right. And, you know, the devil can't handle one thing. And it's, you know, it's said if you read the uh, sort of the bi- biographies, if you will, or bios or, or, or some of the 
brief writings that are put out about the, the thousands and thousands of saints that the Catholic Church recognizes, humility is, is a common thread, and it's the one thing the devil can't handle, right? The devil can't handle humility because it is absolutely the opposite of pride. And humility is a challenge. You're exactly right. Faith, if you embrace it and you go opposite, sort of the Dr. Fauci route, who's going to evolve past his faith because it's it's meaningless to him, but you actually embrace Christ and, and the absolute tremendous examples of humility that he gave us on just a daily basis throughout his entire ministry from just relentlessly, you know, preaching, relentlessly healing people, relentlessly dealing with people that scorned and mocked him, you know, relentlessly trying to do good, relentlessly just absolutely giving of himself to the point of exhaustion and then to the point of death without resisting. And he could have easily changed that outcome with a thought. Mm -hmm. And that's humility. So as bad as our day can be, I've mentioned to you before my good friend Darren Drozdoff, who was paralyzed and was a, um, yes. a, a professional wrestler, and uh, he passed away on June 30th. And I got to say a few mm, words. His family sorry. asked me to say a few. Well, thank you. But he, you know, he was 24 years, I think, that he lived from the time he was paralyzed, and the actuary table was 16 or 17 years. So he outlived it. Why did he outlive it? Because his friends, his friends supported him, his family supported him, and he. Once he got past that very difficult period of a year or two of not wanting to be here, of, of just woe is me, once he got past that, right, and God helped him get past that, and he recognized that, you were never going to meet a more humble guy in all your life, right? And this is a guy that I learned at, 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 at there when we were saying a few words, listening to other people. Everybody called this guy and dumped their problems on him, and he always had good advice. And this is a guy who was a quadriplegic, so you talk about humility, Right. Anytime I'm having a bad day, there's always others we can think of who are doing such great things just by the fact that they're pushing through their difficulties is such a wonderful example. So I think getting back to this study, I would say to every young woman on that study, if they knew who they were, who had that scorned look on their face, humility, you're right, Timory, Timory, humility is the answer. Just finding humility, not being angry at the person saying that but understanding that there's so much more to life than self. And if you could get to the point where you recognize that and not everything is hateful and not everything is bigoted and the world is so much bigger than that just silly view, um, that God, there's so much more to the Lord and so much more to faith and so much more to just the joy of, of experiencing what Christ, Christ's love for all of us. Um, it'll make you look back at all that stuff and say, what an amazing God he is for forgiving me for all that and forgiving me in an instant, right? As Catholics, mm -hmm. we know that. In the confessional, that's the greatest part of being Catholic, right? One of the greatest parts. We have the Eucharist, but we also have the ability to go in and come out new and to come out clean and to come out forgiven by a God that just is so merciful. And may we be that example to others because that's the only way to Christ. It's not you know, beating people down and it's not, you know, saying here's what you have to do and abortion is just wrong and you're all going to hell. No, it's that, yes, abortion is taking a life as an example. Abortion is taking a life and that human being has has a right just like you and I to be here. And mm -hmm. love allows you to see that. Humility allows you to see that. Mm -hmm. And maybe you want to know how to grow in humility, whether you think you're one of these people labeled in the study or just in general. It's what we're called to as Catholics to be humble and a few, I think, areas to start. One, the litany of humility is an awesome prayer. Knocks me on my butt. I try to pray at least a couple times a week. Self-denial is key. I think always of the story of St. Therese when she was, St. Therese of the Child Jesus, when she was in 
the convent, there was particular nun who she just really couldn't stand. Drove her absolutely crazy. And so she took it upon herself to just try to t treat her with the greatest honor. And even to do things that would subject herself in many ways to this person. And one of the things that she do is, you know, this one sister, I think she said, would like drop trash on the ground. Was maybe a little negligent with, you know, how, how she did things. And St. Therese, instead of being annoyed or mad at that person, would stoop down, pick the piece of trash up and throw it away and offer it for this person. That's an act of humility. That's getting over ourselves and seeing the good in other people and seeing how we can lean in and step up. And I think that's significant when looking from the perspective of the study and bringing, bringing a faith-filled response to it. Oh, absolutely. That's a wonderful example. Makes me think of um, years ago, I worked with um, uh, a group that was advocating for uh, Solanus Casey um, uh, to be a saint. And I think he's blessed. I'm not sure if he's uh, been canonized a saint yet, but he was a, um, I can't remember what order Solanus Casey was from, but he was a porter. Right. So he's for blessed 40, now. yes, he's blessed. Awesome. And so for 40 years, right, this is a guy that basically worked the front door. And everybody remembered him. And that's why I remember listen, reading his story on the walls there. Um, it was, uh, he was a gentleman that just greeted everybody, whether it was the archbishop, whether it was a cardinal, or whether it was the maintenance guy. Everybody looked forward to seeing this guy. And the other brothers had just sort of said, look, he's kind of a simpleton. Let him answer the door. Well, and now he's on the pathhood to being a saint, right? And that's, and that's a man who just gave his entire life to humility in making people coming through that door or leaving that entranceway you know, feel like they were special. And that's what humility is. And the Catholic Church, from top to bottom, it just has so many wonderful examples of selflessness to the point of death. Mm. You know, St. Ignatius of Antioch, I gave a little bit, talk, uh, included him in a talk uh, a few months ago. And in looking in at some of the things he wrote, he joyfully went to being eaten by lions. Like he couldn't wait. I mean, the things that he said, you're just like, is he a crazy person? I mean, he couldn't wait for the lions to be chewing on him and give his life to Christ. And <laughs> that's a courageous, you know, that, that courageously humble, selfless human beings. I'm not sure we'd all echo that sentiment about being eaten by lions, but <laughs> that might be an extreme example. But there are just so many in the Catholic Church of humility. And that humility is what gives, as you pointed out, that's a great discernment, Timory. That's what gives that, you know, I guess the AI recognizing which faces are happy and which faces are not, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's what it is. It's humility and peace. The Bible says, let nothing disturb your peace. And if you live your life where everything is hateful, everybody's a racist, everything's a phobe, and everybody's a bigot, well, you're going to be just gonna, not going to be happy your entire life. What a total waste of existence, right? It's, it's better to come back from that and realize there's so much more to life than just accusing others of something, of trying to love people and you make the world a better place rather than a place that just points fingers and tries to divide. Amen. And I know some people will say, well, I can't help my face. Maybe I have RBF, which is a resting bleep face, as you know. And I've heard people say, well, try to smile. You, you can change that. You can't change your face, but you can change how you respond to things, how you respond to people. And if you know maybe you have a face that maybe doesn't always look friendly, make a concerted effort to smile. I think that's important. We need to have a certain self-knowledge and awareness and people say over and over again that often when people have frowning faces, it's because they've allowed themselves to be that way, whether it's what we're thinking about or how we're reacting to people. 
And I do think that's significant. But another side of this that I do want to touch on, because I do think it's significant, Hugh, my producer Jim just commented, he said, women who want to look like men are attractive, or sorry, women who want to look like women are attractive, while women who want to look like men are not. And I think that's whole, a whole part of this contribution to the left versus right debate of it, is that statistically speaking, people who hold more conservative values embrace the feminine dimension of the human person while we're seeing less of that politically on the other side. So I do think that that's part of this whole debate as well in having a certain level of self-understanding and discovery and articulation and how we respond to people. Oh, absolutely. And amen, Jim. He's exactly right. There's no doubt about that. I have a beautiful wife and three beautiful daughters, and I tell people all the time, thank God they look like their mother. Uh, because me me in a dress is a horrible idea, right? And that's exactly right. Beauty, I think beauty, yes, beauty can come from within, but I also think that beauty comes from grace. You know, I'm thinking of all the beautiful kids that I'm aware of and exposed to because of our work here that have Down syndrome. And just the, the world might say, well, they're, they're, they're imperfect or they're ugly or they're this or they're that. They're the most beautiful people you've ever seen in your life because they just... They just glow, right? They glow from grace and they glow from the love that the families that the creator sent them to have embraced. And that is where beauty comes from. And that is where peace comes from. And Jim's exactly right. If you're trying to be something God didn't intend, it's, it's never ended well. I don't know how many mm-hmm. people have come, in, come across the, the planet from day one, maybe a couple hundred billion, 200 billion, whatever that number is from day one through now. But anybody that has opposed the Lord finds out in the end they were wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And especially when they could have been self-aware that, that he was here for them the whole time. Mm-hmm. So opposing God and opposing his creation and editing his creation and mutilating his creation um, is absolutely going to bring about that ugliness because, Timmy, there's probably a spiritual side to it too. Right. If you're, and not that we're perfect, Christians certainly are not, but you know, if you're embracing things that are demonic, well, you know what? You could be exposed to things that are absolutely impacting you and guiding you and hurting you, and you're not even aware of it. And that's, I talk about all the time with pornography. Don't, to young men, don't, don't invite that in. Don't invite it in because what you think you're seeing, there's much more to it, and you don't want that around you. And when it attaches, it's very difficult to get rid of. Um, and that's the spiritual side of ugliness. That, that can be mm-hmm. reflected too. Yes, and just a resource for anyone who might be struggling with pornography, integrityrestored.org. That's integrityrestored.org because I know it's something a lot of people are struggling with, so it's a great resource out there. Hugh, thank you for joining us today. Tough and interesting topics being discussed. But that's Hugh Brown, the Executive Vice President of American Life League. You can find them and their great pro-life work at all.org. That's all.org. I'll be right back on Trending to dive into... How we come to understand ourselves through Pope St. John Paul II's biblical anthropology known as theology of the body, especially talking about how women come to a greater understanding of ourselves. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Think about who we are as human beings and what we are, how we interact with the world. Do you ever think about the fact that 
From the dawn of creation, God intended us to be full of grace. What Pope St. John Paul II says in his Theology of the Body is that he refers to us as human beings in the garden as having lived an original state of innocence. No shame, comfort with nakedness before each other, understanding the spousal meaning of the body, sexual complementarity, pointing to so much more with regard to the gift of self and how we're all created to be a gift. This is what we've been unpacking in his theology of the body. But something that starts to really be emphasized is how important it is, Pope St. John Paul II says, in that we understand that we reach an understanding of the state of original innocence, understanding the body-soul relationship, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, knowledge, wisdom, courage, counsel, fear of the Lord, understanding, piety, all of these being lived out and understood in this perfect relationship with God and therefore perfect relationship with our neighbor and with how we interact with and use creation. Pope St. John Paul II, when talking about this grace of God and original innocence prior to the fall is the ethos of the body, how we come to understand and know the truth of who we are as human beings. He says it's the permanent root of the human person. And fundamentally, he says that being male and female is fundamental to this existence, that we're always created as a male and female, that we are always as such male or female. So one, that we're created that way. Two, that we recognize that that's the case. Third, that he said it's fundamental to the meaning of who and what we are. He says that through the spousal meaning of the body understood in our maleness and femaleness, the sexual complementarity that is, that fundamentally this is a condition of the meaning found in the body. He says this is important, indispensable, essential, that it's important for the future of the human person, for the human ethos. And as we talk about that, I think that why I chose to do this series on Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body is so that we understand, at the end of the day, the antidote to everything in culture today is God, and that God did not design us from a fallen state depraved, miserable, sinful, but God from the dawn of creation saw us as very good. He intended us with innocence, with perfect union with him, but he gave us free will and that is part of our downfall. But this original innocence, what he says is that it manifests and constitutes the perfect understanding of the gift of the human person. And that's determined by grace, that life is a gift and fundamentally, this is the deepest dimension of who we are in living out this gift through God's grace. And I think this is a setup for when we'll talk later on in Pope St. St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body about baptism and the sacraments. Now, what's interesting to me is I've been reflecting a lot on this when we talk about how the original state of the human person in the garden was really a state of grace. Because we talk about a state of grace today, post the fall, when we received that sacrament of baptism and how fundamental baptism is. And I've been reading a lot, especially as a young mom, about the responsibilities of motherhood. And I think this ties into Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. And that he talk, we understand as Christian mothers, we have a responsibility to preserve and protect the baptismal graces of our child so that they maintain and stay in a state of grace. And that part of the responsibilities, the duties of us as mothers 
is to make sure that we're teaching our children before the age of reason how to have their character formed so that when they reach the age of reason, that point when they can sin for themselves, they know how to combat and respond and react to themselves and the world around them so that, and this is what's I think so challenging and key, and I hear no one talking about this, the proper formation of the child by the mother is to help prepare and form the child so that when they reach the age of reason, they are prepared to preserve their baptismal graces. They're, preserve, they're prepared to remain in that state of grace. Now we want to make sure that they have resource and recourse to the sacrament of reconciliation. But the goal shouldn't be to always focus on reconciliation and needing confession, but that it's so that we know that it's there. The key should be that the formation of the character has already occurred so that it's not necessary to the point that our culture has become so reliant on confession. I'm not saying that confession is bad. I'm not saying go to confession less. Dear Lord, I need to go con- go to confession more. It's so important. Pope St. John Paul II, incredible, incredible human being and saint, went nearly daily from, from reports we have. And when I talk about this preservation of the child and that innocence of sanctifying grace given at baptism and how we're called to preserve this in our lives, I think this is why saints such as St. Maria Goretti, St. Germain, St. Therese of the Child Jesus, and even two of the young Fatima visionaries were able to die at such a young age and choose God. And think about St. Maria Goretti. Think about in her, her being confronted at such a young age by someone who wanted to sexually assault her, and she said no. She said no, not just for her own sake, but for the sake of not wanting him to sin. And he stabbed her and killed her. And she was okay with that because she was honoring herself and her body, but she was helping him to honor himself as well, even though he chose to kill her. St. Germain, another great saint who at a young age died and suffered great, great violation by family members. A St. Therese of Lisieux choosing God at such a young age and dying at a young age, what made this possible? I do believe that it was through the grace of the sacrament of baptism in preserving that and having had their characters formed at such a young age. And so I bring this up in compliment to what Pope St. John Paul II is discussing in that our view, our understanding of who we are as human beings needs to not be so focused on the fall of the human person, but on the original intention of God in that original state of innocence, that perfection of the relationship between the person and God, and that we now experience this through the grace of the sacraments. And so we'll unpack tomorrow how this is lived out and seen more concretely in the life of the woman and the life of the man, and how men and women come to a greater and deeper understanding of themselves within this greater context of a biblical human anthropology that is so necessary for how we understand ourselves and respond to the many challenges and crises of the culture we're living in today. Up next is a family rosary across America.